The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning. Welcome to uh, West Houston Bible Church in our Sunday morning worship service. have a couple of announcements before we begin. Uh, first of all, next Saturday morning, April the 1st, there's a ladies' prayer luncheon at the West Falls home at 10.30 a.m., and you can RSVP, and that number is uh, been on the screen earlier, 713-862-4269, or just tell Tuts in the back. Also, don't forget, next Sunday morning is... Uh, Daylight savings time, so we all need to spring forward on Saturday night to make sure we're not uh, too early, or that's right, that everybody show up too early for church. That might be a good thing. <laughs> and then on Thursday, April the 6th, not this coming Thursday, but the next Thursday, there will be no uh, Bible class. I will be in Connecticut at uh, teaching at Preston City Bible Church. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that we live in a nation that has the freedom where we can gather together, worship you, we can gather together, freely study your word, and work out the implications of all that is taught in your word. Father, we thank you for the fact that we have this church, this congregation, and these folks who desire to know you, to know your word. Father, we pray that as we worship you this morning in song and in teaching, that you will be honored and glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing hymn number 203, And Can It Be? Scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 65. Psalm 119, verse 65. The psalmist extols the value and priority of knowing the Word of God and applying it in our life. Begins in verse 65, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to thy word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me. But I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Let's stand together for our second hymn, number 271, Standing on the Promises. There are different facets to worship. Part of our worship involves singing praises to God for what He has done, what He has revealed to us in His Word. Another aspect of our worship is giving. Giving is a privilege of every believer priest and part of our responsibilities as believers to support the local church as well as to support missions. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the collection, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, again, we are grateful for all you provide for us. You not only give us 
everything we need for life, but for our spiritual life. Your word is sufficient, and it instructs us in everything that you have done for us in our salvation. Now, fathers, we give these gifts to you. We recognize that they are but a token, a small token of our appreciation for all that you have done for us and all that you have provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and that life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give each of us the opportunity for self-examination to make sure that we are uh, sanctified. That means positionally set apart for the use of God, the Holy Spirit, to teach us, to mature us through the teaching of his word, and to be ready to concentrate, focus on what God has to say to us through his word today. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're grateful that you have revealed so much to us in your word. Your word tells us about the nature of the human condition, that we are fallen, we are guilty of Adam's original sin, we are condemned to eternal separation from you, but the scripture doesn't stop there. It tells us about your love for us, that you loved us in such a way that you gave your son, your only begotten son, to become a human being that he might go to the cross die for our sins. But that is not the end. That is but the beginning of the outworking of your perfect plan of salvation that will ultimately culminate not only in our redemption, but in the redemption of the entire universe and the creation of a new heavens and new earth. Now, fathers, we focus on this revelation that you gave to the Apostle John that unveils for us your plan for the future. As we go through this book of Revelation, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that the teaching is not something related only to the future, but impacts how we think today, for we are to live today in light of your future plan. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, which begins, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, there are four things that are packed into that verse. It orients us to this seventh, uh, excuse me, to this fifth letter uh, to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. It tells us that this particular one is addressed to the church in Sardis. It's particularly interesting how the history, the background of the church in Sardis 
has bearing on the spiritual condition of the church that is in this city of Sardis. Also relates to the uh, character, certain characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ, as gets exemplified in the statement, "He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars." And then there is the first part of the commendation of, and in this case, it's merely a condemnation of the church at Sardis, one of two churches that have no statement of commendation. So we've looked at the address to the angel, which we began last time, trying to understand why this is addressed to an angel and how we are to properly interpret that. The second is the connection to the church of Sardis and the background of the church of Sardis. Third, the character reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourth, the summary condemnation, how that relates to us. Now, it takes some time to go through these four things because there's a lot involved. You can't just jump in here and sort of dump the conclusion out there because understanding why things are said the way they are and their, their background is important to understanding the impact of this message for us today. We're separated from these events by 2,000 years. We don't know a whole lot about the church at Sardis. We don't know who even lived there or ministered there. We know nothing about it other than what is contained in this brief note of condemnation. The church of Sardis is the fifth of these seven letters written to seven congregations that are located in the western part of Turkey in the province of Asia Minor. Now, these cities are not that far apart, as I've said. They are very close to one another. And as we shall see, Sardis is only uh, 40 to 50 miles away from its neighbors. So the basic culture in each of these cities is very similar. Nearly everyone had a Jewish uh, presence, a Jewish synagogue. Nearly every one of them had a uh, a congregation that had been there for a while. Uh, nearly every one of them were surrounded by all of the pagan temples to, in Greek religion, worshiping all of the different gods and goddesses, and they tended to emphasize the same ones. Uh, we'll see that Sardis had a temple to Artemis, just as Ephesus did, that there was also a huge presence and influence from the uh, Sibylle Attis cult that we'll go into that that influenced them in terms of their uh, cultural background toward mysticism. This dominated uh, that part of the ancient world. So each of these congregations have a tremendous amount in common. But what these short evaluation statements are doing is highlighting basic trends, some negative, some positive, and as I have pointed out, two of them have nothing positive to say about their recipients. Two of them have nothing negative to say about their recipients. But they are used as patterns or models for all congregations of trends that dominate through the church age. So it gives us as believers in the 21st century an opportunity to look at the kinds of things that the Lord Jesus Christ will highlight, emphasize, and bring out at the judgment seat of Christ And eventually, we're all going to be standing before the Lord Jesus Christ at that judgment seat. Jesus Christ revealed himself to the Apostle John when he was in uh, exile during during a persecution by the Emperor Domitian. 
And John was sent to the island of Patmos. And it was there one day on the Lord's Day on a Sunday morning that suddenly he heard a loud voice as of a trumpet and he turned and he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was at that time that the Lord revealed himself. And as he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, he saw he, and describes what he saw and the various ways in which the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. And then he was commissioned at that point by the Lord Jesus Christ to record what he had seen, that is, the past events on the island of Patmos, that covers chapter 1, the things that are, that is, the things that are operational in this present church age, covering these seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and then the things that shall be, that is, the events of the future that don't begin to take place until after the church is raptured, to go to be with the Lord in the air, and then the tribulation uh, will begin. So we uh, began last time just looking at about three different things. And the first had to do with, I think I've got a slide out of order there, uh, the role of angels in the Bible, because that first statement is addressed again to the angels. And we started off, by looking at how the angelic rebellion flows behind all of human history, and that human history is directly related in the Scripture to this angelic revolt that took place in eternity past, prior to the creation, uh, or prior to at least the restoration of the planet, Genesis 1-2 through the end of Genesis chapter 1. And that human history is related to that angelic rebellion. And so these angels and angels throughout history have a particular role that they play in relationship to the outworking of God's plan. It is apparent from Scripture that something took place postponing the uh, full execution of God's sentence on the angels. He, After uh, Lucifer fell, he led a third of the angels in revolt against God and Matthew twenty five forty one states that the lake of fire has already been prepared perfect tense of the verb indicating a completed work in past time present existence of the lake of fire and it's, it's there, it's in existence so why aren't the devil and his angels in the lake of fire and the scripture just gives hints as to what seems to be going on here that Satan has challenged God. That's what Satan means, is the challenger, the accuser. It is a legal term taken out of the courtroom of the ancient world. And Satan is challenging God's verdict. And he challenges God in a number of ways. They all tend to, uh, can be summarized basically, but he's challenging God's character, God's love. And has God really given him an opportunity to prove what he can do that according to, on the basis of his own uh, mentality, his own talents, his own ability, that that's, Lucifer is claiming he can run things as well as God can. And so God is demonstrating throughout the history of mankind that a creature, no matter how brilliant they are, no matter how capable they are, that no creature, no angel, no man can do what only God can do. Therefore, the only way there can be stability or happiness in life is for the creature to be completely dependent upon the Creator. That's the background. 
We saw that there's the fall of Lucifer back in Isaiah, as described in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. This trial of the fallen angels where they're condemned to eternity in the lake of fire and then a period of angelic observation during the present appeal trial. Eventually there will be an end to evil, an end to this rebellion, and Satan and all of the fallen angels are cast permanently into the lake of fire at the end of the future millennial kingdom. Now, when we come to this section and why these are addressed to the churches, we realize that the Lord Jesus Christ revealed the entirety of the book of Revelation to John on the island of Patmos. And John was told not just to send one letter to its uh, congregation, but he was to make seven copies and send an entire copy, including all seven letters, to each congregation. So it is addressed to John, but it is also addressed to these angelic witnesses whose role it is, as I pointed out last time, to function sort of like a modern court reporter in our court might function in that they're keeping records and, and recording the evaluation of the Lord Jesus Christ for each congregation and showing how he is fair and just in the way he deals with congregations. They're also functioning in some sense like a federal marshal would function as an officer of the court in executing the mandates of the court and bringing witnesses to the courtroom or arresting uh, those who are, have violated the law. Uh, it's, it's a combination of a number of things that we have carried out by different court officers. So the angels seem to function throughout Scripture in this way. So we went back and we did a word study. We saw that the word angel, which in some cases means messenger, either the Hebrew word angelos or the Hebrew counterpart malaak, indicates a messenger, someone who's carrying out a job, usually of communication in some way, from someone else. But in the Bible, the use of this word to describe a human messenger is indeed very rare. In the New Testament, there's only six times that the word angelos is used to describe a human messenger, and three of those are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're all... Uh, related to a quote from Malachi related to the role of uh, John the Baptist as a messenger who would come before the Messiah. So we see that in terms of a word study, angelos has a primary meaning of, of a messenger. Furthermore, when we get into the book of Revelation, the word is used 67 times. That's a third of its uses in the entire New Testament. And... Uh, of, the, of those 67 usages, only, not, only eight, the ones we're concerned about, the seven that occur at the beginning of each one of these short epistles, plus there's one reference to these angels at the end of chapter, chapter 1. So these eight uses are in doubt. But if you look at the preponderance of usage in the New Testament, it's clear. It never refers to a human messenger other than a prophet one time, but it's not just talking about him as a prophet, but as a messenger. And it's never used to refer to a pastor. Never. Not in biblical literature or extra-biblical literature. So if we're going to say that this is a pastor, you have to have strong, compelling evidence from the text. If you're going to say it's a human messenger, you also have to have strong, compelling evidence from the text. 
And if you can come up with a, an understanding of why it would be an angel, then that fits the, and preserves the lexical integrity of, of this particular word. And the reason that, that I I'm, I'm make a point out of all of this is because you will read in various things, uh, commentaries, and you may hear other pastors teach, and they'll refer to this. This is a, a dominant view, is that this is either a pastor or a human messenger. But that's because very few have really tried to plug it in to the overall function of angels in the book of Revelation and in the Bible and try to see that there, there could be a legitimate meaning of this word as an angel within the structure of the angelic conflict. Matthew 11.10 is the verse I mentioned that talks about uh, John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. It's not even referring to him as a, as a prophetic messenger. It's simply that he was announcing the Messiah is coming. He's about to be here. And that is not even necessarily a prophetic type of, of uh, message. So we have to be careful with this. Second thing we saw as we went through the angelic conflict is that God is demonstrating to the angels various things that they seem to be able to learn only from us. And we saw passages such as 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9, where Paul says that God has displayed us, the apostles, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men, that we are, as it were, in a, in a cosmic uh, stadium, and in the stands of the angels, and they're watching us and watching how we respond to God's grace and how we disobey Him and how we obey Him and how God deals with us. And so we are, as it, as it were, uh, a visible testimony and witnesses to God's character, which, of course, has been challenged by Satan. Furthermore, they learn things from us. At the end of 1 Peter 1.12 talks about the things that we do are things the angels long to look into, that they desire to look into. They, they are learning things about God and about us that they couldn't learn any other way. 1 Timothy 5.1, Paul charges or commissions Timothy in his ministry before the angels. Why? Because the angels are witnesses. This fits within the entire Old Testament pattern that the angels are witnesses. Moses called upon heaven and earth to witness the, uh, the Jews' obedience to uh, the Mosaic law. And we saw that this is part of their function in passages uh, and in various other passages. Uh, so they have various operations related to carrying out God's Word. This was the third thing we looked at last time, how the angels operate in the Bible, how they operate throughout the Bible. We went traced the, their uh, operations from Genesis to Revelation last time and showed that even though there are times like, for example, the announcement of the birth of Messiah, they ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were there at his, at his death, at his burial, and at his resurrection. Uh, even those function within a broader context of the outworking of God's plan and the provision of what? Blessing. Angels are used and in, in, in related to the administration of God's judgments in history as well as blessing in history. A uh, key passage to look at is found in, and I don't have a slide on it, Galatians 3.19, that the angels in, were present when Moses gave the law. And Galatians 3.19 says that the law was ordained 
through angels. Now, that's an interesting word there. What does that mean, ordained? Uh, there's a similar word used in uh, Acts chapter 7, uh, 53, that the, that the Jews received the law by the direction of the angels. What we have is a verb in Galatians 3.19, diatasso, and in Acts 7.53 we have the noun form of that, diatage. And both of them refer to uh, something that is put into proper order or arrangement. It refers to giving detailed instructions about something that must be done. But there's another element to this word that's brought out in the Liddell Scott Jones uh, Dictionary of Classical Greek, and that is that this word was frequently used in legal documents in the ancient world. And what I discovered since last time was that a cognate word based on diatasso is the word diatheke. Diatasso, D-I-A-T-A-S-S-O, that T changes to a theta, T-H, and you have another noun form, diatheke. Diatheke is the Greek word for covenant. When you hold it, look at a Greek New Testament, it says, hey, kine diatheke. And so this word diatasso is directly related to a covenant, which is a legal contract. So this, uh, uh, the fact that the angels were there and they, they, the law was ordained, uh, all of this is legal terminology. They're functioning again as legal witnesses to the signing and the initiation of a contract. And this is the same kind of thing you see at the end of Deuteronomy, and well, beginning of Deuteronomy and end of Deuteronomy, when uh, Moses is reaffirming, restating the law to the people, he says, I call upon the heavens and the earth. Not the, he's not calling upon the impersonal bodies of matter that uh, are out in outer space as planets or stars. He's calling about the inhabitants of the heavens, the angels, and the inhabitants of the earth. That all of God's creatures are witnesses of this contract and how it will be worked out faithfully by God in human history. And so angels function in this particular in this particular manner. Furthermore, Daniel, we saw that uh, Daniel refers to the angelic watchers, that they observe history and that they are used by God in moving certain things along in history. We don't see them. It's an invisible influence. You don't go out and say, oh, such and such happened, therefore it must be angels. We don't know. It's invisible. But we do know that angels are involved. We just don't know how. We don't see it. And when people start speculating on it, it produces some really strange stuff. I remember years ago, somebody gave me a book called Angels on Assignment. And, oh, it was all about somebody's watching angels be involved in all kinds of things. And you always see this kind of stuff uh, come out especially in more charismatic literature. There were a couple of books that came out in the late 80s, uh, Piercing the Darkness by Frank Peretti, and uh, uh, This Present Darkness. Uh, these were a couple of novels that he wrote, uh, and um, they were very popular. I mean, so millions and millions of copies. But they were basically fictional accounts of spiritual warfare, and he can see the angels, and he tries to show what they're doing. But it's all speculation, and it's very theological. And a lot of people get sucked in because they think, oh, it's just Christian fiction. But fiction is a tremendous tool for teaching anything. I mean, there's all kinds of examples that one could go to biblically. You just look at the parables. Jesus uses parables, which are fiction, in order to make certain points. Aesop's fables, the same 
kind of thing. You have fictional stories that are designed to teach and communicate uh, values, morals, worldview, uh, things of that nature. So this kind of stuff is is very uh, can be very dangerous. I remember I was uh, uh, at Dallas Seminary when those books came out in the late 80s, and there were uh, I would run into people on campus who'd read the book. Oh, isn't it wonderful? I just learned so much about prayer. Oh, so you're charismatic now? Oh, no, 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 no. I said, well, that's that's the whole theology of prayer that's presented in the book. That, that you have to pray or the angels can't work. Is that what you believe? No, 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 I don't believe that. Okay, so tell me exactly what you learned biblical from this book. And I was amazed at how many, I'm talking about THM students and PhD students who put their brain in neutral when they read a fictional account. And they just absorb all kinds of bad, poor, wrong theology. So we have to be careful when we go to these passages in the Old Testament and New Testament that teach about the fact that the angels are watching us. They are. That's a reality. But just how they're involved and what they do is not revealed in Scripture, and we can't go there. We can't uh, try to determine that because God has not revealed it to us. So that was a background. We saw the role of what, what the word means. We saw the role of angels throughout the Bible. We've struck, stuck that within the framework of the angelic conflict. And now what I want to do is stick it within the framework of Revelation. What do angels do in the book of Revelation? Because you see, if we're going to interpret this word angel to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Smyrna, the angel of the church of Thi- uh, Pergamum, the angel of the church of Thyatira, then we should fit our understanding of that word within its usage in Revelation and what angels do in the book of Revelation. Are these angels functioning any differently from the angels in the book of the rest of Revelation? And remember that Revelation is a book that is not written for the purpose of satisfying our curiosity about the future. It's not written to help you understand how God's going to... uh, when God's going to come back and what's going to happen in the Middle East and, and how, how does Islam fit into God's plan for the future. I mean, all that can, can be addressed secondarily. But it is written to demonstrate that eventually God is going to judge sin and evil and bring all of this to a conclusion within human history. And so the book is about judgment. Jesus Christ is presented there in Revelation, that vision to John. He is presented carrying a long uh, broadsword, which is a picture of judgment. His white robe is a picture of a judge. Uh, the, the nuances of the images that are brought out, how he appears in the first chapter is that of a judge coming to bring judgment. These seven letters are written as evaluation statements. They're not written to teach principles of the Christian life like Ephesians or, or Romans or 1 Corinthians. They are written to evaluate, to judge these, congre- these congregations. So how does that fit into the book of Revelation as a whole? Well, if we move ahead to Revelation 4 and 5, those two chapters fit together and give us a uh, vision into the throne of God. And what we see there is that these angels and their different uh, representations of these angels are around 
the throne of God. And they are oriented to one issue. And that issue has to do with the scroll that is being presented and who is worthy to take the scroll. This is the question that is raised in chapter 5, verse 2. John says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And the loosing of the seals is the beginning of those final judgments in the book of Revelation. There's three series of judgments, seven judgments in each series. The first are the seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment contains seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment contains seven bowl judgments. So if you can just remember seal, trumpet, and bowl, seven, 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 you've got it. That's that's the that's the guts of Revelation. It's these three series of judgments that God unfolds during the uh, tribulation period. And this scroll is the title deed of the planet, as it were. And before the Lord Jesus Christ can come back and take ownership of the planet and establish his kingdom, there has to be a judgment of purification of the planet from sin and evil. And so the angel is announcing who is worthy to execute those judgments on the planet. And the answer is that it is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the only one who is worthy because he is the Lamb who was slain and who has redeemed us to God. This is described in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins. He is the one who redeemed us for our sins. The reason that the planet has been lost is to the control of Satan and uh, his angels is because of sin. And so the planet itself must be redeemed. Not only are we redeemed as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the entire planet, human history, has to also be redeemed. The planet, as Paul says in Romans 8, is suffering under, is groaning today, suffering under the condemnation of sin. So the, the redemptive work of the Lamb on the cross is not merely human and individual, it is also historical and, and it has to do with the, uh, all of the universe, the heavens and the earth. And so the Lamb comes forward, and He is the one who is qualified by virtue of His redemptive work of the cross to bring about and carry out these particular judgments. The next picture we see of angels is of the angels before the throne, verse 11 of chapter 5. Then I looked, after the cry has gone forth, who's worthy, the Lamb is revealed as the one who is worthy. Verse 11, I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, living creatures are like cherubs or seraphs, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, or I think the old King James said myriads upon myriads. And they cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Seven things he is praised for, but they are singing his praise. The next time we see angels, turn over a couple of chapters, is in chapter 7, verse 1. This is in the outworking of the seal judgments. And we come to the seventh uh, seal judgments, and are uh, the, a period, an interlude between the sixth and the seventh. And 
Uh, John says, after these things, after these six seal judgments have been revealed, he says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, they are obviously in control of the meteorology of the planet, but they're not simply weather angels. That's not their function is to control the weather. Their function is judgment here. And it shows that in the outworking of divine judgment, they're in control of all of the elements of the planet. So we see that they are holding back uh, the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, and this is to bring about a judgment upon the earth. Another angel shows up in verse 2. John says, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. See, they're not just holding back the winds. They're doing other things as well. And he says, don't harm those whom I'm getting ready to seal. And he seals 144,000. The 144,000 aren't the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not meeting down at the kingdom hall. They're not the Mormons. They're not you know, any other group. The 144,000 are 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And some people say, well, who knows who those 12 tribes are? Don't we have 10 lost tribes? Well, they may be unidentifiable by you, but omniscient God can identify every descendant of every Jewish tribe. And he will uh, save 12,000, not 12,001, not 11,999, but 12,000 from each of those 12 tribes, and those 144,000 will be given a specific mission during the tribulation to take the gospel throughout the world, but specifically they will be going to uh, Israel, and they will be sealed so that nothing can harm, none of these judgments that come to pass during the tribulation will, uh, and none of the attacks from the Antichrist will harm these 144,000. So the angel, this angel, seals them, which also indicates perhaps uh, angelic protection throughout the tribulation period. Let's get down to verse 11. 7 verse 11, All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Why are they worshipping God? They are attributing honor and power and glory to Him because He is carrying out judgment. So again, we see their role in worship, but that is within the framework of the outworking of judgment on the planet. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, we see seven angels standing before God who are given the seven trumpets that relate to the announcing of the seven uh, trumpet judgments. In 8 verse 3, then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the the altar. uh, And he fills that censer with incense, which represents the prayers of the saints. And what are the saints praying for? They're praying to God that he'll finally bring about and complete judgment of sin and evil and rebellion on the planet. So these are not just uh, intercessory prayers. They're prayers related uh, to judgment. And he pours it out on the earth, which is the divine answer to their prayers, and it produces noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. In verse 6 and following, the seven angels have the seven trumpets, and they prepare to sound them and to announce uh, each of these judgments. 
And then after the first four, the last three are called the woe judgments. They are so much worse than the first four trumpet judgments. And there is an angel that flies around the planet, and he announces the coming of these three last judgments, these, these woe judgments. In chapter 9, we see that the fifth trumpet judgment involves a star and an angel that falls from heaven to earth, and this angel opens the abyss, and this releases an imprisoned group of demons that have been imprisoned and awaiting this particular moment in history so they can come forth and come under Satan's bidding in order to inflict all sorts of uh, horrors upon the human race. And this is a form of divine uh, judgment. And then in in chapter 9, verses 13 and following, we see that a sixth angel, this is the sixth trumpet judgment that takes place, and he is told... Uh, to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And these, re, uh, these angels are released, and their judgment kills a third of mankind. At this point in the tribulation, half the human race is killed in terms of divine judgment. Half the human race. So right now we have, what, six or seven billion people on the planet. If this were to begin now, then in the next four years, three billion people, three to three and a half billion people would be killed. We think things are rough just announcing the fact that 12 uh, U.S. soldiers were killed in an uh, IED attack in Baghdad yesterday. Well, it's going to be uh, a million a day or more are killed on the planet. This is going to be just a horrendous event. It's going to be like September 11th five or six times a day in different places on the earth. It's going to be caused from nature judgments, from health problems. It's just going to be uh, so horrendous that people will not be able to keep up with what God is, is doing in terms of judging the planet for their rejection of Him. Chapter 10, a mighty angel with a small book announces another series of of judgments. Verse 1 of uh, chapter 10, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices and when the seven thunder, thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered. So he announces another uh, level of judgment. Chapter 11, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, and that judgment begins, which unveils, opens up to be this last series of judgments, the seven bold judgments. In chapter 12, in chapter 12, verse 7, there's a war in the heavens between Michael, uh, the archangel, and his angels, and the dragon and his angels, and the dragon is that serpent of old, the devil. And Michael defeats the angels of Satan, and they are uh, cast out of heaven in verse 9. The devil and his angels are cast out of heaven, and they land on the planet, plop. And they're visible, not visible today, but they'll be visible then. This is going to be a really bizarre period in human... It sounds like science fiction almost. But what God is doing is He's bringing to culmination everything that's been involved in terms of the angelic conflict in that sphere and 
its outworking in human history. So it's at the tribulation that these two arenas, the invisible to us now and the visible, merge together right toward the end of the tribulation for the final outworking of God's judgment. In chapter 14, uh, John says, verse 6, another angel flies through heaven, and this angel is proclaiming the gospel. So not only do you have men proclaiming the gospel during the tribulation period, but you have an angelic announcement uh, of the gospel. And millions of people are going to be saved during the tribulation. It's not uh, merely a period of horrible judgment, but millions, it's grace before judgment, millions will be saved as a result of these announcements. Uh, John in verse 8 sees another angel that announces the doom of Babylon. In verse 9, he mentions a third angel who warns uh, mankind about taking the mark of the beast. In verse 15, another angel comes out of the temple imploring God, the one who is on the cloud, to thrust in his sickle and reap a picture of divine judgment. And then in verse 17, yet another angel comes out of the temple with a sharp sickle to bring about those judgments. And in verse 18, even another angel comes out from the altar with power over fire and cries to him to thrust in the sharp sickle. And then in verse 19, this angel thrusts in the sharp sickle and executes judgment. The point is, again and again and again, we see that the role of the angels in Revelation is to bring about and to execute the judgments on planet Earth that God calls for. Chapter 15, verse 1, the seven angels with the seven last plagues that are the bold judgments come forward. And so these seven angels, each bold judgment is initiated and brought about by another angel. These bowls are filled with the wrath of God according to verse 7. But you see you have different, three different wraths in the book of Revelation. You have the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 6 that is poured out upon the earth. Then you have the wrath of Satan because he is angry. And in one sense, this is his last temper tantrum in history to try to pull about, uh, pull off his attempt to control the planet. And then the final wrath of God, which brings all judgment to conclusion. In chapter 16, verse 1, the seven angels are commanded to pour out their bowls. In chapter 17, verse 1, one of the angels takes John to witness the destruction of the uh, woman and the beast. In chapter 17, this is the scarlet woman and the scarlet beast. The woman who rides the beast is a picture of the Antichrist kingdom at the end of history. And some people think that that has something to do with the present European economic community because they have taken a very ancient symbol of, of Europa riding the bull as a symbol for the European economic com community. And so what is uh, the image of Europa riding the bull? It's a woman riding the beast. And she's surrounded by stars in the uh, symbol for the European economic uh, community. And so some people speculate that that indicates that the uh, EEC is part of the, uh, the future revived Roman Empire, but it's got a lot more than ten nations in it, so it's really hard to figure out which, how it fits the ten-nation confederacy. All that's just speculation, but it's in interesting how ancient symbols are being revived today to, as pictures of present political 
um, political alliances. Uh, chapter 18, another angel with great authority announces the fall of Babylon. Then in chapter 19, verse 17, an, an, an angel announces the gathering of the final armies to announce the fall of Babylon. Uh, Babylon the Great, how you have fallen. This is the headquarters of the uh, Antichrist, the great beast of, of, of uh, Revelation. And there's a great debate over whether this is literal Babylon or a, a Babylon is just used in a figurative sense in the book of Revelation. And I incline to the view that it is a literal use of the word. We have to be consistent in our literal interpretation of Scripture. And Babylon, if you go back, as we will when we get there, go back to Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, which describes the future uh, or describes at that time the future judgment fall collapse of Babylon, that if you read chapter 13, all of that has not yet transpired. It talks about how God will, will judge uh, Babylon and wipe it out, and no one would ever live there again. And yet there have been scholars like Charlie Dyer, Dallas Seminary, who's now, uh, I think he's academic dean up at Moody Bible Institute, and he has done uh, 25 years of investigation over there in, in Babylon, there's never been a period when there weren't uh, when there weren't settlements on that site of Babylon. Uh, even today, there are three different villages that inhabit that area. But Isaiah 13 says that there, uh, after God judges it, there will never be another human uh, habitation there again. So that prophecy really has never been fulfilled, but it will take place and be fulfilled in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 20. After the battle of Armageddon, an angel is given the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he go and he is to execute that judgment and, and to put Satan into the bottomless pit where he is chained for a thousand years. The uh, next time we see an angel is in Revelation 21, verse 9, where this angel is revealing the future to John and shows him the bride, the lamb's wife. And in chapter 22, verse 6, again, information is communicated to John by an angel. And in Revelation 22:16, Jesus sends his angel to communicate to John. So those last three uses are appearances of an angel in this book relate to their communication of doctrine information to uh, the Apostle John. So that's a quick run through the book of Revelation. But what we see is the predominant use of angels, the way they are portrayed in the book of Revelation is to show that, God, that, that they are instruments of divine judgment. And that fits within the entire pattern that we saw last week in the Bible, that angels are used by God to bring about His judgments on mankind as well as to bring about blessing on mankind. They are uh, officers of the heavenly court and they record these Events in human history so that as Satan and the fallen angels bring their challenges to God that you're not fair, that how can a just and loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? Uh, how can you uh, condemn us because you've never given us an opportunity to show what we can do? That when these charges are brought against God, God has his record keepers who are keeping a written record in the heavenly courtroom of God's works in human history and how he is perfectly just and righteous in his outworking of his plan 
uh, among the angels, I mean among the churches, especially during the church age, that even though this is a period when angels are not visible, when demons are not visible, when God is no longer revealing himself to man as he has in previous generations, we don't have dreams and visions, the Urim and the Thummim are not operational uh, prophets are not operational today. There's no new special revelation. It is a time, a unique time in history, where the test of the of the believer today is to believe what God has revealed in the past and to walk by faith and not by sight. And so, the evaluation of all of these congregations in uh, Revelation chapter two and three is related to how well they are living out their spiritual life on the basis of the provision that God has given to us uh, through His Word and through God the Holy Spirit who is the one who empowers us and strengthens us to live the Christian life. And as the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, as we walk by means of the Spirit, Galatians 5.17, the Holy Spirit produces what Paul describes there as the fruit of the Spirit. It is character and character transformation takes place as God changes us from fallen creatures who operate on arrogance to those that operate on the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and He transforms us inwardly so that we reflect the person and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation for all of these uh, evaluations that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. So there is an evaluation statement as we see in verse 9. I know your works. I know your production. And we'll come back next time and we'll move into the background of, uh, of this particular letter. We covered the issue of the angel. And the next time we'll look at Sardis. Uh, excuse me, I said verse 9. I meant verse 2. Uh, he knows our, uh, the latter part of verse 1, rather. He knows our works. And he is able to evaluate us. So next time we'll look at Sardis. We'll look at the background, how that affects the congregation, how the culture, in fact, even the history of Sardis, affected the spiritual orientation of the believer. Now that gives us a lot to think about in terms of our own history, our own culture. How does that affect the strengths and weaknesses that we as Americans display even in our Christianity? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we do thank you that we have this chance to gather together, this chance to uh, study your word, this opportunity to realize that everything that, that even in our lives today ultimately will lead to a future judgment, a future evaluation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or, or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. If you are trusting Jesus Christ and His complete work on the cross for your salvation, then you have eternal life. You don't need to trust anything else. Jesus Christ alone is sufficient. It's not a matter of trusting in Jesus and morality, Jesus and going to church, Jesus and ritual. Nothing else is necessary. Jesus Christ paid the price. He paid it in full so that we could have eternal life. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We 
pray that you drive them home into deep into our thinking, that the Holy Spirit may use it to transform our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.